1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, the love, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Lord, you say the reason that we know you are with us and remain in us is if we believe in Jesus and love one another. God, we pray, Lord, that you would fan into flame our faith in Christ to know and believe and be certain of his life and death and resurrection, Lord, his love for us and that it would overflow from us into one another's lives in love, that we would love one another as we have been loved. God, teach us, for we are not able to do this in ourselves. We're not able to do this from our own wisdom, our own strength, Lord, our own desire. We need you to make us people of love. We pray, Lord, that as we look into this word and we see your truth, God, and we see maybe even difficult truths, truths that we're not ready to accept, we pray that above all else, we would encounter the love of God in Christ Jesus today and that you would slowly and gently adjust our hearts so that we can receive all that you have for us. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, in the last 30 years, uh, many couples have benefited from a conversation about Love languages. We're familiar with love languages. Uh, love languages is this is this concept um, that whether you buy into it hook, line, and sinker or not, um, it's been helpful for my marriage. It's been helpful for many other er- marriages. If you're unfamiliar with it, it came from a counselor's personal experience in counseling couples. He found that people had different ways of receiving and expressing love. And this can cause problems in a relationship. It's like trying to listen to an AM radio station on an FM radio, right? There's real information in the radio waves, but without the proper hardware, you're never going to make sense of it, right? And so if someone has a particular way that they naturally express love, and that is different than the way you naturally receive love, there's going to be a disconnect. It's not saying that that person doesn't love you. It's just saying that it takes some translation, takes some contextualization. Now, I've shared this before, but my wife Katie and I have very different love languages, Very, very different love languages. My wife is one of the most incredibly thoughtful people in the way that she loves people through her acts of service, through doing kind things for them. She thinks about them. She strategizes. She's aware of what they need and how she can come alongside them and love them. She is incredible at this. But acts of service, so to speak, is the FM radio station to my AM radio. It, does, it doesn't compute. I appreciate it. 
I, 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 like, I'm grateful for it, but I don't ever leave those situations and go, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so loved. They love me so much because they did this thing for me. I appreciate it. It's great. Thank you. My love language, the way I experience just the power of love and intimacy in a relationship is by sharing experiences with somebody. So I want people to enjoy what I enjoy. I want them to celebrate what I celebrate. I want them to appreciate and experience with me in the way that I appreciate it. Isn't that selfish of me? Love what I love. But that's when, when that happens, naturally, uh, I, I feel very connected to someone. So if you've been a part of this church for like five minutes, you probably know my love for baseball, right? Got a huge, I, I love baseball. My wife is not a natural baseball lover. She does it because I love it and I appreciate that. But there was one day I was watching a game and there was a benches clearing brawl and I have never seen my wife so interested in baseball before. Why are they fighting? Are they allowed to fight? Does, does the manager know that the pitcher threw at him? There's this whole like culture behind the game and she's just like getting so fascinated by it and I've never been so in love. It was, I, I don't know what happened. I was just like, I love you right now. Um, well, we, we recently just joined a local co-ed softball team. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> and, uh, and it turns out my wife is a baller. She, like, she can play. Like she, I think she did one season as a kid, and she went to the batting cages, and she's like crushing the ball. She's making plays in the outfield. And y'all, I am so in love with my wife. It is, it is, I never knew love could be like this. It's just like, she's, she's amazing. Love it. It's awesome. Sharing and enjoying experiences together, whether it's a, it's a meal or a movie or some other good thing is like the surefire way straight to my heart. Now, again, I don't buy into the whole five love languages thing. If you've read the book or familiar with it, I don't buy into the hook, line, and sinker. Maybe you don't either, but the conversation can be helpful. It can be helpful, and it gets couples talking about what they appreciate about the way they show affection for one another. But there's a problem that I've seen develop from this idea that one person experiences love differently than another. It's fine if it results in shifting our efforts to contextualize our love for the other person. It's great if I go, okay, this is the way I want to love my wife, or this is the way I want to love this this person, um, but I know that that's not their natural way, and so I'm going to do the thing that's less natural for me so they experience the height, the utmost love that I have for them. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's, that's translating. It's contextualizing. It's loving someone the way that they need to be loved in that moment. But the problem occurs when we only understand love through our own particular lens and then impose it on everybody else. To say, no, 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 this is love. Sharing experiences, that is love. Everything else, that's not love. Love is this. When we go from from how we experience love to then allowing our experience to define love, that becomes a problem. And there's a lot of, in all honesty, there's a lot of garbage definitions of love out there in the world because people have done this. There are some terrible definitions of love. Our world is so confused about what love is and isn't, and we're straining ourselves to find some way to identify what love is, that now the reigning definition for love in the culture today is love is love. And that's ridiculous. Green is green, blue is blue, sky is sky, and water is water. It literally doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. There's no substance to it. We have to identify what love is before we can try to just put labels on it and spread it around and say that everyone needs to do it. If they don't do it my way, then it doesn't work. 
There's other definitions of, of love. Affirming that everyone is good and their every desire is equally valid as anyone else's. Unless I desire to uphold biblical truth and then I'm the devil. You can't, you can't, you can't desire everything and affirm that everything is good and true. What if I wanted to find love as everyone doing whatever I say and never questioning me? Maybe that is exactly what I said I wanted people to do, to enjoy the things that I enjoy. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's the case, right? Um, we can't say, like, honey, I don't feel like you love me because you keep questioning my demands. That's not, it's just because someone doesn't do what you say doesn't mean they don't love you. See, this is no longer a conversation about expressing love. It's about defining love. And so today it seems that everyone feels entitled to their own definition of love. And what you call love might be different than what I call love or what somebody else calls love. And so you see the problem here. You see the problem that I might relate to you by the way I define love and that not be the way that you define love. And I think I'm pouring my heart out just absolutely lavishing you with love and nothing. So when we read this command to love one another, we have to be clear about what that actually means. We have to understand what it actually means, what the biblical author intended for it to mean and for us to understand when he says to love one another. Because the world's definition of love is not the same as the Bible's definition. And so we as a church, if we are going to be faithful to Scripture and have an impact in the world around us, we have to get love right. We have to get this right. If we get this word wrong, then this command to love one another that shows up in Scripture time and time again, if we get this word wrong, if we get love wrong, then, then we're not going to be able to live the faithful lives that Jesus calls us to live in loving one another. It is crucial that we understand what love is. So let's start with the word love itself. The word in the original language is agape. When John is telling people to love one another, he's telling them to agape one another, agape one another. How can the, the agape of God live, remain in them if they hate their brother? This is the word that is translated in our text, love. Every single time, the word behind it is agape. But agape is not the only word that carries an idea or the concept of love in the Greek language. I think that's one of the things that confuses us is we have one word that has all these multifaceted definitions and meanings. The Greeks actually had four. So storge is the love that bonds families. Storge describes the love between a parent and a child. Right? It's this love that, that just exists because of familial familiarity and affection. It's, it, it's the love that, that unites and bonds families. Philia is a different word for love, sometimes referred to as brotherly love, as in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, refers to relationships between close companions and friends that makes non-related people live like brothers and sisters. This is, this is a, a brotherly love, a, a, a companion affection and love and commitment to one another. Then there's eros. Eros is romantic love. It includes physical attraction to someone. It's, that, it's like chemistry where you see someone, you're like, I love you. I must be with you. I must have you. It's this, it's this romantic affection, this romantic love. But agape is a unique kind of love. It's a, it's a, it has a unique definition all to itself. These other words, they have different emphasis, but agape is an unconditional commitment to pursue another person's well-being. And it's an unconditional commitment to pursue another person's well-being. This is the word that is always used to describe God's love for his people. And it's the word that John says must characterize our relationships with one another. And so while we are to love all people, including even our enemies, this passage today specifically focuses on the need for believers to love other believers. Sometimes this is more difficult. Sometimes it's more difficult to love somebody in the church because they should know better. It's difficult to love one another 
when we claim to have the love of God and yet hurt each other sometimes. We do. It happens. Community is messy. And so this command to love one another is specifically related to loving believers. That's why John uses the word brothers. And brothers is kind of a a hard word for us to, to wrap our minds around. It's not talking about just male believers. It's talking about brethren, the, the brethren, which is all of the believers, brothers and sisters, male and female. So what does this look like in practice? To love one another with an unconditional commitment to pursue another person's well-being. Well, John begins to describe what love is first by giving a counterexample of what love is not. He looks to Cain's cold-blooded murder of his brother. What does it look like to love one another? Don't kill each other. Fair enough? Let's pray. Um, No, he starts with what love isn't because it helps us understand. He says, love is not being a murderous brother or sister. It's not killing your brother. See, after Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they were expelled from the garden to live in exile from God's presence. Adam and Eve had children. Their oldest son's name was Cain, and their their second son was named Abel. The story is in Genesis chapter 4. You're probably familiar with it. Cain was a worker of the ground. He he was a farmer and Abel uh, cared for the flocks and herds. And so both of them decide they're going to make, give God a sacrifice of the fruits of their labor. And so Abel sacrifices some of the flocks and herds and, and Cain sacrifices some of the fruit of the ground and God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but, but declines Cain's sacrifice. And Cain gets furious over this. And God comes to him and says, the reason I didn't accept your sacrifice is because you do not have righteousness in mind. He says, if you do good, will will you not be accepted? But if you sin, sin is crouching at the door. His desire is to have you and you must master it. He's telling Cain, look, if you, if you do good, if you do righteousness, if you do what I've commanded you, you'll, like, you'll, be, you'll be accepted. And so Cain has that conversation with God and responds not by repenting and saying, okay, God, I'll, I'm going to live for you. No, he says, hey, Abel, come out into the field. Abel goes out into the field and he murders him and he kills his brother. And so don't kill each other. Okay, check. If this was all John said, if this was all John said, then, then the, the, it would actually be pretty clear, right? Um, love would be easy. Just don't kill anybody. If this was all John said about love, we can conclude that love means what many people in the world today claim that it means, which is that love is doing no harm. You've heard this phrase before, doing no harm. Um, Many people will define love that way, that as long as I'm not hurting anybody, as long as I don't hurt somebody, as long as I don't offend somebody, as long as I don't hurt their feelings, as long as I'm not doing something that contributes to some unpleasant thing in somebody else's life, then I can consider myself a loving person. And if you do anything that upsets me or hurts my feelings or offends me, then you hate me. And if you're not willing to stop doing that thing, that is a great evil in our culture because it comes from this idea that love is doing no harm. But that's not what John says. See, John explains why he uses this example. He says that that Cain's hatred for his brother resulted in his brother's death. So he had this hatred for him that resulted in his brother's death. And so John says, whoever does not abide, or sorry, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Now, this is a heavy statement, right? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It's a heavy statement, but it is consistent with the teachings of Jesus, who demonstrated that sinful actions stem from sinful attitudes. It's not just about what you do. What you do is on the surface, but the attitude, the motive that drives what you do is where the sin begins. It's where it's harbored. It's where it's fanned into flame. 
And it's where it becomes something vile. And so the hatred that led to the murder of Abel is just as evil as the hatred that might not lead to literal murder, but stems from the same evil intentions. In the same way that Jesus says uh, adultery stems from fanning into flame the sin of lust, murder stems from fanning into flame that sin of hatred. It's all connected to the same thing. It's not, it's not enough to simply avoid the crime. God's interest is not only in our actions, but in our attitudes as well. And so if love is not living like Cain, who ended his brother's life, then what is love? It's not as simple as, baby, don't hurt me. You know, come on, come on, right? What is love, love? Baby, don't hurt. Okay. Seriously? You don't know that song? Okay. Night of the Roxbury. <laughs> SNL. There you go. All right, that's how you know it. So look at, look at uh, how John continues in verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? See, it's not as simple as just doing no harm. It's not as simple as that. It's not enough to just avoid being a murderous brother or sister. It's also not being a negligent brother or sister. See, John says that neglecting the needs of another when we have the means to help stems from the same heart of hate that caused Cain to do what he did. Anytime we neglect to meet the needs of another person, the essential needs of another person, when we have the means to do it and we close our hearts to their, their need, we close our hearts to, to what is required to sustain their life, to sustain their well-being, it stems from the same heart as Cain's hatred for his brother. In Cain's case, he interferes with Abel's well-being by ending his life. But in the case of the negligent brother or sister, they interfere with well-being by withholding the necessities of life. One is active, the other is passive. One is a sin of commission, right? Doing the thing that ought not to be done. The other is a sin of omission, not doing the thing that ought to be done. And they're two expressions of the same heart. That is, you don't matter. Your life doesn't matter. The, the, the world does not value you. The, the, the world is not impacted by your presence. And so I can either take you out as Cain took out Abel, or I can ignore your need, I can ignore your humanity, I can ignore your desperation, and allow nature to take its course because you don't matter. It's the same thing. It's the same heart. It interferes with the well-being of another. So someone can live their whole life doing no harm and not necessarily be a loving person. John says that they also abide in death. And so when we take all of this together, we see that John's understanding of love that he, that he lays out for us is reconnecting us back to that original definition that, that we read, that to love is to actively pursue the well-being of another person. It, it's not being a murderous brother. It's not being a negligent brother or sister. It's not, it's not removing somebody's life or, not, uh, or, or even just withholding good things from somebody's life, but he goes further and says that it means being a generous brother or sister, right? Anyone who has the means and does not meet the needs is just like Cain. And so the call, the command to us today to love one another is to be mindful of the means that we have and to be generous with our means to those who have needs. The perfect example from scripture is the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, a, a Jewish man was on the road. He was traveling and he was attacked by bandits and robbed and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And then a priest walks by 
And he sees the man, but he crosses to the other side of the street and walks past him. The assumption is that, that if the man was dead or if the man had died in his presence and the priest was there, the priest would have been made temporarily ceremonially unclean and unable to serve in the temple. And so he chose his ceremonial cleanliness, uh, over, which only would have lasted a few days, over this man's well-being. And so he passes by on the other side, doesn't care for him. Then a Levite passes by, another professional minister in the temple, and he does the exact same thing. Doesn't want to be, doesn't want to sacrifice, doesn't want to sacrifice his cleanliness, doesn't want to sacrifice, you know, for a couple days the job that he's required to do, so he's going to pass on the other side of the street and let this man lie there wallowing in his own pain and misery and eventual death. But then a Samaritan walks by. And we read this and we're like, oh, okay, what's a Samaritan? A Samaritan was the enemy of Israel. They were their, their neighbors uh, across the way, and they hated each other. Samaritans hated Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They couldn't stand each other. The Samaritans were the ones who wouldn't allow Jesus and the disciples to pass through their territory. And James and John go, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and burn, burn them all up? Right? It was just that quick to like, can we just destroy these people? They hate each other. And so they're cruising. Uh, the, a Samaritan is cruising by, sees the man, Jewish man, on the side of the road, just, you know, political enemies, and he cares for him. He goes to him. He cleans his wounds. He bandages him up. He, he takes him to an inn and brings him to the innkeeper and, and gives money so that the innkeeper will continue to care for him and says, whatever else you pay, whatever else you have to spend on this man to, to, to save him, to rescue him, charge it to my account. This is love. This is an incredible act of love. He pays for it all. He makes huge sacrifices that he didn't have to make, but he had the means to make in order to spare somebody's life in a moment of crazy desperation. This is love. The generous caring for the well-being of another person, despite how you feel about them or what they have done or have not done to earn it. See, this, this means, the parable of the Good Samaritan means that you don't have to like someone to love someone. You don't have to like them to love them. You don't have to have affectionate feelings or want to do something kind for them in order to be faithful to the command to love one another. You can't just sit there and go, okay, feel love, love this person, feel like God, I just like, and muster up this affection for someone else. That's not how it works. The command to love one another is not a command to feel something. It's a command to do something, to care for one another. And so it's generous and self-giving. It's not passive. It's being a generous brother or sister, and it's being a truthful brother or sister. He says, don't just love in word, but in deed and in truth. And so specifically in the context of 1 John, it's the love that doesn't hide the truth of Jesus. Remember this, this, this group of people had left the, the, the church and wandered off into heresy in, in John's context. They had abandoned the gospel. They had abandoned the good news of Jesus. And one of the other things that they were trying to teach people was that love didn't matter. It doesn't matter. Your faith is a personal relationship with God and your faith is only about what it gets for you in eternity in heaven. And so it doesn't matter what you do with other people. Sound familiar? This is rampant in the church. That your faith should be privatized. Your faith is between you and God. Don't tell anyone else about it. Don't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how other people live or how you live in light of other people. It's just about you and God. You do your thing with God and you don't need to worry about anybody else. This was the same thing that they were trying to teach the church. It doesn't matter if you love people. And John says, oh yes, it does. It does matter that you love people. It does matter that you tell people the truth of Jesus Christ. It does matter how you're living. It does matter whether or not you are loving people. See, it's good to care for someone while they're living, but with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to care for someone not just in this life, but also the next life. And so if it's loving to sustain somebody's life on earth, how much more loving is it 
to show them the way and invite them into eternal life in Christ. This is what John means by loving in deed and in truth. We want to serve them and love them, and we want to give them the truth of Jesus because it would be unloving to withhold from them what they need for a life with God. This is what it means to love. This agape love is the hallmark attribute of the Christian community. It's how we are to be known Jesus said that all people would know that we are his disciples by our love for one another, by this unconditional commitment to the well-being of one another, that us, Reality Carpinteria, that we would be committed to making sure that everybody in our midst, all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, have everything that they need, that no one goes in lack that nobody is, is in danger of, of uh, a, a, a damaged well-being, so to speak. We care for one another. This is the command to love one another, and it's, and it's the evidence, Jesus says, that we are his disciples. And so loving one another is not like, a, it's not like an item on a, a church menu of participation, like Some people serve coffee, some people serve as ushers, some people preach and lead worship, and some people love one another. It's not an option. We don't get to pick and choose. It's a a requirement. Regardless of your role in the church, believers are required to love one another. And this means, this means you. This means that you are commanded to love one another. So love means being committed to the well-being of another person. If you only love because of how it makes you feel, it's, 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 not, really, it's not really love. I mean, it is. It's, it's just loving yourself. But love, when, when we don't necessarily feel those feelings of affection, is, is beautiful because of this commitment that we have made to one another, to serve one another. And the interesting thing is, is that when we act in love toward one another, we feel those affections for one another beginning to grow. Just if, like, if there's somebody that you don't like, just commit to serving them for a while. And honestly, it's, the, it's almost unfair how true it is because you want to keep not liking people oftentimes. And when you start serving them, God just doesn't let you keep not liking them. He creates this love in you because his love is coming through you. And so love means giving yourself for the sake of the other. And so this means that love comes at a cost. What will it cost you to love people today? What will it cost you to love people this week? Well, for starters, John says that it will cost you the world's affections. That's kind of a bummer. It's kind of a bummer. If you're living your life for Jesus, pursuing righteousness and loving in deed and truth, John says the world's going to hate you. The, the, the mainstream culture out there, they're not going to like you. They're not going to like your righteousness. They're not going to like your love. They're not going to like your standards. They're not going to like your faith. They're not going to like your, your high moral ethic. They're not going to like those things about you. They're actually not even going to, because of their distaste for what you believe and what you stand for, they're actually not even going to like your love. Your love will feel wrong to them. Your love will, will feel like hate to them. Your love will feel to them like Abel's righteousness felt to Cain. This is why he says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Though you pursue good, they don't want good. Cain didn't want good. God invited him to good. He declined good. He wanted his sin. The reason the world hates the church, the reason the world hated Jesus is they didn't want his good. It says that he came, he brought the light, but they didn't want the light because they loved the darkness. And so if we are loving people in this way, we will lose the affections of the world. If you're wanting to love like God loves, then you will not be loved by the world. Abel wasn't, the prophets weren't, Jesus wasn't, the apostles weren't loved by the world. And, and for some reason, we feel like we're going to figure out some missing piece to the puzzle that God's people have never had in the past and that somehow we're going to unlock the mystery of how to love Jesus and be loved by the world. And it's incompatible. It's not going to happen. We don't need to be surprised. We need to be prepared 
It will cost us the affections of the mainstream culture. John is clear about that. But there's another cost. It doesn't just cost us the world's affections. It costs us the world's goods. Time, money, energy, the means, the, the, the world's goods. If anyone has the world's goods and closes their heart to their, their brother or sister in need, how does the love of God abide in them? And so this may mean different things in different seasons. Some days you, you may have time to give, you may have finances to give, you may have more energy to give, but all of these things are required in loving one another to give of what we have. And so how will you be required to love today, this week? There's no blanket answer to that. There's no blanket answer to, that applies to, to every, uh, no blanket specific answer that applies to everyone, right? So we just need to ask ourselves some, some questions. Ask yourself, what do you have? What do you have? Not just material resources, but we can't exclude our possessions and finances either. What do you have? What do you have available to you? What means do you have? It may not feel like an abundance, but it's what you have. Okay, whether it's time or money, a particular skill or training, a passion, a hobby, whatever it may be, what do you have? And then what needs are you aware of? Ask yourself the question, what do you have? Ask yourself the question, what needs are you aware of? There are needs in, in the life of those around you, probably sitting right next to you, who have, who have needs. And whether you are able to meet those needs or, or not, it's good to be aware that, that there are needs among our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there are also means among our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what do we have and what needs are we aware of? God may want you to help meet the needs of those around you. God provides for his people, but so often he chooses to provide for his people through his people. He provides for his people through his people because when he provides for his people through his people, the world sees that. And the world sees the church taking care of one another. They see people loving one another. And that is how they know that we are his disciples. Loving one another is evangelism. Not just when we love non-believers, but when we love one another. It's a sign to the world of the gospel. And so when your own means match another person's need, this is an opportunity to love. How is God calling you to love today, this week? Anytime the means that you have match the needs another person has, that is an opportunity to love. But this doesn't mean that we go around unwittingly uh, just giving everyone everything they ask for. Okay, we don't, we don't just throw money at problems. Uh, we don't just have to do whatever someone says they need us to do or else we're not a loving person. The old adage rings true. Sometimes giving a fish is not as loving as teaching somebody to fish. And so sometimes it's not loving to just give money to someone when what someone really needs is job training or, or uh, an opportunity to, to uh, experience the dignity of work and earning a paycheck and, and being an active contribution uh, to society so that they have something to provide for others. Sometimes we can, in the name of loving one another, we can actually enable addictions and other destructive behaviors. And so we can't just, we can't just unwittingly just, just throw means at needs. Loving one another practically will often just require wisdom and discernment and counsel. But so often people will use this discernment and wisdom and counsel needed and they'll excuse themselves from the command to love. Because I don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that this is the right thing to do, I won't do anything. I know there are needs in the church. But because I don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt whether he's calling me to serve in worship ministry or kids ministry or coffee or the parking lot or to be a Bible study leader, because I don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt what, that God is calling me to this thing, I'm not going to do anything. And so we use 
The fact that discernment and and wisdom is required, we use that to excuse us from doing anything. And so what does loving one another look like today and this week in your life? I can't tell you the practical, exactly the specifics. It's based on your means and the needs of those around you. But I can tell you it will require you to do something. To just do something. To stop over-spiritualizing what love looks like in your life and just serve somebody. For some of you, it might mean filling out one of those white cards in the, the, in the, the seats and just volunteering to serve in the church, right? That's not what it means to love, right? Loving doesn't mean serving the church. But serving in the church is certainly a way to love one another. Okay, for some of you, it might mean uh, contributing financially to the church, overflowing with what God has given you and, and providing for the needs and resources of the body of Christ when we gather here collectively and minister to the community around us. Now, that's not what love means. Love does not mean giving money. But certainly when you contribute money to the work of the ministry, that's loving the body of Christ. It's loving one another. And so there's all kinds of ways that God may be calling you to love one another, but one way specifically that you must is to just do something. Do something. Get involved. Love one another. Get to know one another. Invite someone to lunch afterward. You can can love them by meeting a relational need. Someone feels disconnected in the body of Christ, and you can sit with them and get to know them, and they feel connected to the body of Christ, and they feel connected to Christ and what he's doing in the church. You just love one another. Just do something. Isn't that that's freeing? It's just beautiful. Love one another and just do something. We're commanded to love one another. We're never let off the hook. It will cost you the world's affections. It will cost you the world's goods. And ultimately, it costs us our life. It means that we have to see our life as not belonging to us, but belonging to God and being used for his glory and the good of his people. And that is the highest cost that we can pay. At the end of the day, John says that love requires we lay down our lives for one another. Doesn't mean that all of us will literally have the opportunity to die for another person, but it just means that we regard our life as not our own any longer, that it belongs to God, and that we give ourselves to the service of loving him and loving one another. See, love requires that we give up the right to see our lives as belonging to us because like we talked about last week, we're children of God through faith in Jesus. We belong to God's family. And last week, the application of that means if we belong to God's family, we need to behave like God's family, right? It had this implication of holiness. But this implication is if you belong to God's family, our belonging to one another as brothers and sisters means that we love one another in taking care of one another because our lives no longer belong to us. And so it requires that we die to our own rights and comforts for the sake of another person. And so love will cost you. Love will cost you. It always requires sacrifice. And that's why what is even more important than knowing what love is and knowing what it costs is knowing where love comes from. To know where the source of love is. Church, love, your ability to love, your ability to receive love, your ability to express love to another person, love is from God. This biblical, faithful, agape love is impossible to show to another person apart from receiving the love of God for yourself, apart from the love of Jesus. You will not be able to love the way God requires. If our capacity to love is like a bucket, In our flesh, we are scraping the bottom of the bucket. We don't have what's needed, right? But God's love is like this continual uh, rushing river, just filling and overflowing the bucket. We're constantly being filled and constantly constantly overflowing into the lives of others. We're never in short supply. If you have received Christ, you have received an infinite ability to love. You are never in short supply. All the love you will ever need 
you have in Jesus. Sometimes it's that cost of of being rejected by the world that keeps someone from going all in for Jesus. But you need to understand, you have all the love and acceptance you will ever need in Christ. You don't need the world's affections. You don't need the world's loves. You don't need, you don't need to play by, by their rules that tell you that you cannot be a faithful Christian and be faithful to Scripture and still be a loving person. You can't cave to that. I know so many people who, who believe that they have to uh, be loved by the world so that they can share their love for Jesus with another person. And so they, they wait to share their love for Jesus until they're loved by the world. And at some point, there comes a time when they have to either abandon their love for the world or abandon their love for Jesus. They're, they're incompatible. If, if, you're, if you have a business and, and you want to grow your, your, your business and so that, so that you can do uh, great things for, for Jesus and so you need the favor of the community on your side and so you want to be a, a, a pillar in the community and in society for the, the name of Jesus, then in order to get to that point, you are going to have to compromise. You're going, to have to, you're going to have to condemn something that Jesus doesn't condemn or you're going to have to support something that Jesus doesn't support just to keep yourself in the world's good graces and, it, and, it, and it's compromise. If you're here today and you're, and you're just wrestling with this, I can't, I, can't, I can't live in a world that doesn't like me. You need to know that you live in a world where the God who made it loves you. Loves you with an unconditional commitment to seeking your well-being, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Eternity is long. And this God who made you and made everything, he loves you. Jesus loves you, not just in word or in talk. He doesn't just have affectionate feelings toward you. He is infinitely committed to your well-being, not only in this life, but in the next life. He offered himself as a sacrifice for you in life and in death. See, this is something that we struggle to understand when we say, Jesus loves you, he died for you. The world doesn't have any concept of how that's love. Right, imagine you're sitting at the edge of a dock Right? You're at the edge of the pier overlooking the ocean and someone comes to you and says, I love you and I'm going to show you. And they jump in and drown. It makes no sense. But that's exactly what the world thinks of when they think about that phrase, Jesus loves you, he died for you. Well, why? Unless the death of Jesus provided something that you need, that's what love is. Right? It's a commitment to their well-being. So unless you are in, in need and somehow that death accomplishes something for you, it makes no sense. So let's look at it picture a different way. Let's say you're caught in a riptide. And someone comes and says, I love you. And they rescue you and die in the process. That we get. Because I was going to die. And that person saved me. They risked their life and they sacrificed their life for me. They traded places with me. See, this is the greatest need that we have. It's not food. It's not shelter. It's not even oxygen. The greatest need that we have is the love of Christ. The greatest need that we have is relationship with God. The greatest need that we have is to experience this intimacy with the creator who made us, but our sin has separated us from him. And so Jesus didn't just give part of what he had to meet part of our need. He went full send. He gave everything. He left his eternal riches in heaven, was born into poverty, lived in poverty, lived a righteous life, took the sin on his shoulders that he didn't commit and died the death that he didn't deserve to die. 
all so that our sin can be forgiven and we could be restored into a right relationship with God. This is love. He gave everything. It cost him everything so that you could receive what you need most. I don't, you know, honestly, man, I don't, I don't care what the world says about reality carpenteria. I don't care what the world says about Adam Smith. I don't care what the world says about any one of us. It doesn't matter because Jesus looks at all of us through faith and says, I love you. I love you. Zephaniah says that God sings over you. God's like writing love songs in his affection, his commitment to you. He loves you. We don't need anything else. And when we receive that infinite love of Jesus, it overflows through us into the lives of others. Do you want to be a loving person? Do you want to show the world that you know how to love? Then don't listen to their definitions. Don't listen to what they tell you you have to do. Look to the scriptures and know that Jesus died to save you from your sins. He gave you what you need so that you could live a life, not just of well-being, but of flourishing. And now go and show people by doing the same for them. He did not count his life something to be used to his own advantage, but he laid it down so that you could experience life in his name. Do not consider your life something to be used to your own advantage, but lay it down for his glory and the good of those around you and watch the world look and just be baffled at how great the Father's love is for his people. Heavenly Father, this is a massive task and we need your power and your grace, your love, your spirit to accomplish it in us. And so before we even turn and think about loving those around us, Lord, we need to, be, we need to sit and receive your love for us. God, we need to be reminded of just how beautiful your love is. And so Lord, would you stir up our hearts Lord, would you stir up our hearts to, 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 to receive just this beautiful good news that our sin is forgiven and that you love us with an undying love. God, I pray that your love would be our, our shelter today, that your love would be our peace today, that your love would be our joy today. I know there's a lot going on in the world and in our own lives, God, but if you love us, we can endure anything. If the maker of heaven and earth loves us, if our savior who died for us loves us, then we can endure anything. God, so stir up in our hearts love and affection and joy because of what you have done for us. And may it pour through us, not just in our voices, not just in our words, Lord, but in our deeds and in the truth that we tell to those around us, Lord. Would you make us people of love? In Jesus' name. Amen.